So a couple weeks ago, we talked about glory and who gets glory from our actions and whose glory we seek when we do things. So this morning, we're going to talk particularly about God's glory and what Jesus says about that. Before we get there, I want to kind of set the stage what the Bible tells us about God's glory. Because it's important for us to understand that everything he has made and everything he has done points us to him. Everything that his hand has made and his hand has done points to his glory. And when we begin to witness what God has done and what God has made, we begin to understand his majesty. His awesome beauty. His splendor, everything that is righteous and good and and wonderful, everything that is praiseworthy is who our God is. And the amazing reality that this divine transcendent God who transcends space and time has made himself known to us, has revealed himself to us, even gives us a glimmer of his glory. So I want to look at a couple passages. There are many. We could spend all day running through Scripture and what it says about God's glory. But I want to begin with one of my favorite and one of the most foundational in Psalm 19. Uh, Because we're going to be referencing a lot of Scripture today, they are going to be on the screen. I encourage you to turn with me there uh, if you can make it fast enough. If not, uh, we'll get you working on that. Trust me, you're here long enough, you will be moving around quickly. But Psalm 19 is split up into two parts. The first part speaks of God's glory in his creation. And the second part speaks of God's glory in his revealed word. The general and special revelation of God revealing himself to us. We're just going to read verses 1 and 2. But this is the framework. This is where we start from with everything. The heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. And night to night reveals knowledge. This is amazing language. Creation speaks to us. Creation teaches us. You can't look up at the stars at night and not say that there is a God unless you are a fool in suppressing the truth. The next passage is a powerful passage in Isaiah chapter 6. And what's going on here is before God commissions Isaiah, he brings him to the throne room. And if you don't tremble in fear at the throne room of God, you better check your pulse. Look at the the scene here. So we get God's glory in creation. Now we're going to see God's glory before his throne. Isaiah 6.1 In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the Sifram. Each had six wings, and two had covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of the people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. God's glory caused Isaiah to cry out at his own brokenness. Ezekiel has a similar vision. When Ezekiel sees the throne room and glory of God, he falls to his face because he has no choice. 
All that glory present in creation. All that glory that is at the throne. We see in John chapter 1. Just verse 14. John 1, 14. We should know this. We spent time here. Commit this to memory. That same glory. Present in creation. Present at the throne. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son of the father. Full of grace and truth. The glory of God. Present in creation. Present before creation. Present at the throne. The glory of God taking on flesh. And this leads us to this moment. Creation, the throne, the incarnation of the Son. Now we're going to see a unique aspect of God's glory that Jesus describes here that can only be understood at one event. This is an aspect of of God's glory that the world has not seen yet and will never ever see in another capacity. It is only in this instance, in this hour, in this event that we're going to look at today that we see God's glory in his rich mercy and his love and his grace. And only at the cross can we understand God's grace and God's mercy. And only at the cross is the full glory of Christ revealed to us. Let's look at our text this morning. John chapter 12, starting in verse 20, I'm going to read through 33. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd stood there and it heard it said that it was thundered. That it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus said this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from this earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was about to die. Let's pray. Lord of glory, maker of heaven and earth, we stand before you in awe. And if we are not in awe, we better be. Because at the cross, like Isaiah, we have seen your glory and we tremble. I am unclean. I am not worthy of your grace and mercy. But praise be to God that Jesus Christ is glorified in saving wretched sinners like you and me. This is the glory that we proclaim. Jesus Christ died on the cross. 
dead in the grave and after three days rise again to rise on high and sit at his rightful hand, right at the, at the rightful place at the right hand of God, the throne of glory. This is our Lord. This is our Savior. This is our King. And we will proclaim this message until he comes again. I pray that your spirit would guide me and teach us and convict us according to your word. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so we begin here in verse 20. This kind of seems out of place because up until now, Jesus has been dealing with the Jews. And now some Greeks come in. And so I want to touch on a couple quick things, but I want to move through and spend most of our time on Jesus' teaching. Verse 20. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. These are actual Greeks. Uh, These are not Greek Jews. These are people who are coming to worship. This word for worship is reverential, true worship. They were actually seeking the God of Israel. They came to worship. But they're still Greeks. So that means that they had to sit in the cheap seats. They had to sit in the court of the Gentiles. So they couldn't go to the, the, the inner court. That was uh, the lower bowl seats were only for the Jews. And so they're, they're coming to worship, but they're kind of looking from the outside in. And you've got to remember the theme of, of Passover. Passover is the remembrance of salvation and redemption from slavery. So when you come to Jerusalem, you are celebrating that God redeems his people from slavery. And these Greeks know there's something to this. This is a God of redemption. This is a God of saving. This is a God I need to know. And so rightly, these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Now, I don't know how much is is here, but Philip has a Greek name. Philip comes from Philip of Macedonia, the father of Alexander the Great. And so this young disciple with a Greek name, Andrew, who he'll go to in a moment, also has a Greek name is met by these Greeks. And you can kind of get this, this picture here, because in the inner court, the Jews are able to worship and come and go freely, but the Gentiles are not allowed beyond that, that border. So you've got these Greeks looking in. Hey, come here. I want to see Jesus. And this isn't just see. I'm sure they could see him walking around, but I want an introduction. I want to meet him. Can I talk to him? And this word here for ask, it, it's a continual asking. They didn't just ask one time, like, I I need to see Jesus. Next time they walk by, please, I need to see Jesus. And so this is a very strange request because typically Jews and and Gentiles do not, uh, they they don't interact. And most Greeks would have nothing to do with Jews. They were considered a lower people. So Philip and Andrew don't really know what to do with this. Philip goes to Andrew, and if you remember in John chapter 1, Andrew was one of the first ones who, who came to Christ with, with John. And Andrew's a little more assertive because he went right away and got his brother Peter. Philip's a little more passive. So Philip's like, I don't know what to do with this. Let me go to Andrew. Andrew's like, I really don't know what to do with this. Let's go to Jesus. And so then they make their way to Christ. And then Jesus answered them. Verse 23. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Uh, is that an answer? Jesus, of course, Jesus answers them. In the way that, that Jesus does. He answers them without even addressing the Greeks. Or does he? Because often in the Gospels, we don't get the, the tidy conclusions that we like. We'd like there for be a, a straight answer, or excuse me, a straight question and a straight answer to fulfill all of our needs. Tie this up for me, John. Tell me everything that was said after this. But John's point is not the conversation with the Greeks. It's the presence of the Greeks. And so... While their interaction isn't recorded here, their presence is important, and we'll see that as we go along. One of them we see in Colossians chapter 1, verse 27 and 28. So Colossians 1, 27 and 28 says this. 
So this is Paul writing to the saints. And he begins in verse 27, to them, speaking of the saints, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles, read Greeks, are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you. So God is making known his glory in the Gentiles, that I can even save these unclean Gentiles. And what we have in common is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The glory of God manifested in the Gentiles is the hope of believers, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we might present everyone mature in Christ. Paul's concern in charge to the church at Colossae. See this mystery that God brings Jew and Gentile together. He does it through Christ. Proclaim him. Warn everyone. Your goal is to present people mature in Christ. And there is a way in which redemption in God's plan of salvation is incomplete unless it expands to the nations. And we'll get into that a little bit more as we go. So he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now the hour does not mean 60 minutes. The hour refers to a time, the appropriate time. This hour is the beginning of the end. This hour is where everything changes. This hour is where everything that happened before it now looks different. And there are certain things that could not happen until this hour comes. So what hour is he referring to? The hour has come. It's the point in history where the nations can truly see Christ. These Greeks who are seeking to see Christ cannot yet. Because they're on the other side of the cross. And when Jesus speaks, he's not limited to his time and space. When he says the hour, he's not referring to this very moment, but the time is coming within a matter of days. Jesus sees beyond space and time. The hour has come. I know what's about to happen. And he's looking to the cross. I hope you see this morning that the cross is needed for everything else here to happen. And the cross, in such a way, glorifies him. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So we might just skip through this. For the Son of Man to be glorified. To be glorified means to make glorious. Wait a second. This is the Son of God. This is God himself. How long has Jesus been God? Always. Easy question. Jesus has always been God. How long has Jesus had glory? Always. But now there's something where an hour where Jesus will be glorified. He will be made glorious. What can you do to add glory to the creator of the universe? To the eternal God? Only in this hour will his glory fully be shown. Glorified how? Because it is only at the cross where the beauty of God's love and mercy and redemption is put on display. You can't understand mercy and grace without understanding your sin and need for a savior. You can't understand God's love until you understand that he sent his son to die for sin. Jesus' glory is glorious. But on the cross, we see it fully. We can't understand his love until we understand how much he loves us in order to die for us. 
And only the Son can do this. This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Before this, he's just a teacher. On the cross, he becomes the Lamb. This is the full range of God's glory on display. Think about that. By saving sinners like you and me, God gets more glory. I can't even wrap my head around that. That God uses us to get more glory for himself. And when we see worship in heaven, Revelation chapter 5, they are worshiping, not a teacher, not a guy who walks around with lambs around his neck, not a guy who looks good on Christian store gift cards, but the lamb who shed his blood. Revelation chapter 5, starting in verse 11. Now we get another picture. So we've seen Isaiah in the throne room of God and what worship sounds like. Holy, holy, holy. Now, what does worship look like after Christ is glorified? Revelation chapter 5, verse 11. Then I looked. This is John giving a, getting a vision of heaven. And I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying in a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Amen. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that was in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Isaiah saw worship where the cry was holy, holy, holy 24 hours a day. But in a way, after Jesus is resurrected from the cross and ascended to heaven, worship becomes more powerful. Worship becomes more meaningful. Now it is the Lord and the Lamb that is being worshipped. How is Jesus glorified? He is glorified on earth and he is glorified in heaven by this hour. Why is there sin? Why is there the fall? Why do we die? Glory. Why is there sin? Glory. Why was there the fall? Glory. Why did Jesus have to go to the cross? Glory. This hour. And so to these Greeks, if you really want to see me, as when Jesus again gives them another direct answer that we really want to hear, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. Thanks for clearing that up for us, Jesus. Makes perfect sense. Here's, a, you know, here's another one of those analogies where Jesus jumps right into uh, a, a cultural example that they, they would have understood in their daily lives, but now he gives deeper spiritual significance to it. And we get, peer, we get paradox number one. That death leads to life. Now it seems a little counterintuitive, but we, we know this. Without decomposition in the soil, there's no nutrients for the, the plants and all that. Um, But animals and vegetables have to die in order for us to eat. They must lose their life. They must be cut off from their source of nutrients for us to survive. Death brings life. And life cannot exist without death. You must kill to eat. For those who, animal rights people, you have to kill a head of lettuce to eat it. You have to cut off its life source. So... Don't, don't, don't pick and choose your battles. <laughs> truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth, it dies and remains alone. Unless you cut it off from its life source, it cannot bear fruit. But if it dies, 
it bears much fruit. So this has a double meaning here. This first applies to Christ. He must be cut off from his life source. He must die in the form that he is in. Unless this grain of wheat dies, it cannot fall to the ground and bear fruit. This must happen first. But this also applies to everyone who would follow after Christ. You must die to yourself. You must die to the form that you have so that you can take on a better form and bear fruit that goes on into eternal life. So that you know that if Jesus didn't go to the cross, there wouldn't be salvation. Yes, we think we know this. But when I hear many people describe Jesus, he's a good teacher. He's a moral example. He's a a healer. He works miracles. That guy can't save. All the good teaching and all the miracle in the world cannot save you. It is only when he goes to the cross and dies that there is salvation. Only from his death is there life. You see how important this is. Do not take that from him. Do not make him less than he is. Do not make the the, the Lamb of God a simple teacher. It's a different guy. It's a different religion. And there can only be fruit after his death. And that fruit will be the healing and reconciliation of the nations. So what is what Jesus is saying here, in a sense, he's not addressing the Greeks directly, but he's saying, if those Greeks want to follow me, I'm going to die. They're going to have to die, too. And unless unless they get cut off from their tree, they can't be attached to the choice vine. They're going to have to die to themselves. They're going to have to die to their culture, die to their identity, die to their life in this world, and they will have life in me. Do they want to see me that bad? Hopefully so. And this is what Jesus says to us as well. This is not just for those Greeks. This is the same for all people throughout all times. Jesus died so that we might die. Not so that we'd be comfortable and get everything we want. Jesus died so that we might die with him. Jesus lived so that we might live with him. This is what is required of a believer. We are to die. To everything that we think gives us life in this life. And if we do not die to this world, we cannot have life in him. It's a lot more difficult than the gospel that, is, that many people are teaching. It's not the gospel of Jesus. It is not the easy way to die to yourself. And if you didn't believe Jesus, he takes it a step further with paradox number two. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. The second paradox is that hating life leads to gaining it. We see this example in every one of the Gospels. Whoever loves his life will lose it. This word in the Greek means to destroy. Whoever loves his life, his life will be destroyed. If you love this world, it means destruction. It is an exercise in futility loving this world. Like you ever tried to hold on to sand and as tightly as you can and just keep slipping through your, your, your fingers? Holding on to this life is walking around with two hands full of sand. You might hold on to it for a moment, but it will never last. It's like building a sandcastle and assuming that it's going to be there forever. That is the futility of this life. That is the futility of the things here. And those who love it, they will lose their life like sand. But the water washes away. 
And then he goes on and he takes it a step further. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Christians, we have this oversensitivity to the word hate. I'm never going to say hate. I can't hate anything. God's hate and his wrath is poured out against unrighteousness. We are to hate our life in this world. Now, what does that mean? That doesn't mean we have unrighteous anger. But what it means is that we are to love the Lord our God. We should know this with our heart, our soul, and our strength. We are to love him so much that every other love that we ever encounter looks like hate. God, I love you so much that the way I love my wife or my job or my kids looks like hate compared to the way that I love you. That's what it means to hate your life in this world. Whoever hates his life in this world, don't miss out on that little phrase there. Because this world is not our home. This world is not our identity. Everything looks like hate. Our affections and our allegiance are not to be tied to things that are passing away in this life. Again, Jesus says this in every gospel. But I want to look at Matthew. Matthew chapter 10 and chapter 16. Just two quick examples. But I think, again, the words of Jesus get right to the heart of the teaching of Jesus. So Matthew chapter 10, verse 37. Whoever loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. Ouch. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Double ouch. Whoever does not take up its cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Again, Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. What does it mean to hate your life in this world? Deny yourself. Deny everything that you find identity and comfort and security in apart from Christ. Deny it. Come after me. Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. When Jesus took up the cross, you think it was comfortable? You think it was easy? It was pain. It was humiliation. But it was for life. Whoever would save his life will lose it. You try to hold on to that sand, you're going to lose every bit of it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Look where Jesus goes next here, though. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of the Father, and he will repay each person according to what he has done. He's coming back. In full glory. With the heavenly angels and armies behind him. And he's coming for those who hate their life in this world. Who love him more than anything else he has made. That makes all of us uncomfortable. We have to take Jesus at his word because we have to understand that the one who forsakes his life in this world gets both Christ and life. But the one who forsakes Christ for his life in this world loses both. Don't forget that. The one who forsakes this life for Christ gains both. But the one who forsakes Christ for this life loses both. And this is so dangerous because 
we're all tempted to love our lives and our identity and our comfort more than Christ. And it breaks my heart every time I speak to a Christian who is more tied to their job or their identity or their standing or some other thing than they are to Christ. They're willing to compromise being with the body. They're willing to compromise being in scripture. They're willing to compromise going to church, really compromise worship. But they won't compromise what they hold most dearly. That should break your heart. It just did. I like that. Verse 26. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. This is the same thing. The, the, the grain of wheat. Whoever loves his life, or excuse me, whoever loses his life, if anyone serves me, the same line of succession here. He's speaking to the Greeks too. If they want to serve me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. Dying to yourself and losing your life must happen before you can serve Christ. You cannot serve me unless you die to yourself. You cannot serve me unless you lose your life in this world. Unless you hate your life in this world, you cannot serve two masters. You cannot love your life here and say you love me too. Jesus says these things in succession. If you wish to serve me, you must follow me. You must abide in me. This is continuous language. Keep following. Keep abiding. Look what he says here. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Honor and glory are are synonyms. You want to honor God? Serve Christ. You want to do what pleases God? Serve Christ. It's amazing here that God gives glory to the one who gives glory to the Son. God gives glory to the one who seeks glory for the Son. That is who the Father honors. Not the ones who are doing good things in their own strength. Not the ones who are patting themselves on the back. Not the ones who are replacing Christ and using him on the side, but the one who seeks the glory of Christ, that is who the Father honors and gives glory to. You want to know what treasure in heaven looks like? Dying to yourself, losing your life, and serving Christ. That's what treasure in heaven looks like. So then we take this kind of morbid turn here, where Jesus is speaking in his flesh in verse 27. Now is my soul troubled, this isn't easy for him. Jesus is fully man. When we, when we read in Hebrews that he's tempted in every way, his soul is troubled because he knows what this hour means. He knows that he will bring glory to the Father in a way that nothing else before or nothing else after will. But it's going to hurt. Not only is it going to hurt from the scars of the people who will throw rocks at him, who will, who will beat him, but the wrath of God being poured out on him, dying with the weight of the sin of every person who will ever put their trust in him. And he is troubled in his very soul. And there's debate over what he means here in this question. But I like it in the form of of a question. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? For this purpose I came. This is what it looks like to have perfect human struggle. Excuse me, to have pure human struggle and perfect human obedience. It is not a bad thing to struggle. It is not a bad thing to be troubled. It is not a bad thing that that we are broken over sin and discomfort. 
But Jesus did not do what was easy. His soul is troubled. In the next verse we see, he goes right to the Father. What an example that is for us. My soul is troubled. But what am I going to say? Father, take this away from me? This is why I came. He perfectly submits to the Father's will, just like he did in Gethsemane. This hour. This is the hour that I came. Think about this. He didn't come to stay in a manger. He didn't come just to teach some good stories and heal a few people. He came for this hour. He came for the cross. The whole purpose of him coming is for the cross. Would I dare try to take that away? Would I dare not move forward in a way that gives God the Father the most glory possible? Of course not. And what is his next word? As he's troubled in his soul, for this purpose I have come to this hour, Father, glorify your name. He is troubled. To God be the glory. Glorify your name. Jesus' concern is not what is what's easy or avoiding pain, but glory for the Father's name. This is what comes to his mind in this moment. The flesh questions and it struggles. But the Spirit desires God's glory. Ain't that the truth? Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Even in his weakness, he cries out to the Father, glorify your name. How many of us, when faced with what would bring God glory, choose the easy way? Try to avoid it. I know you're going to get more glory if I do it this way, but I'm going to take what's easier for me. I'm going to do what's more comfortable for me. I'm going to take the less painful, the easier way. Because it makes me feel better. That is not our Savior. That is not our Lord. He took the most difficult way possible for our sin. So that the Father might receive glory. Father, glorify your name. Again, glory. It's the process of attributing glory to. As we've studied so often in Deuteronomy, the name of the Lord comes up again. And again, the name of the Lord in Hebrew, name and reputation are synonymous. Same word. Father, glorify your reputation. Let your name be glorified. Let your name be added glory upon glory upon glory. And then the the name of the Lord is synonymous with everything he is. It is his character. It is his nature. Everything we know about him. And it is this hour that brings glory to his name. How does it bring more glory? As I said before, and I'll ask you again, how can you understand the grace and mercy of God if the Savior didn't go to the cross? Those of us who've put our trust in Christ and realize how wretched we are, like Isaiah, woe is me. And I've been saved by the blood of the Savior. How can we not glorify God for his grace and mercy toward us? Amen? Praise his name for sending his son to that hour for us. Father, there's a, excuse me, Father, glorify your name. Then the father responds, a voice comes from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. I have and I will again. We saw earlier, the Father's glory has been existent throughout time. We see it in creation, but we see it fully in the incarnation when the word takes on flesh. 
The Father is glorified in Jesus' ministry. He says it again and again in John. The Father will be glorified again at the cross and at the resurrection. And every time we proclaim the name of Jesus, crucified and risen again, the Father gets glory. Remember that. Every time you proclaim the name of Jesus, crucified and risen again, the Father gets glory. So the new point to Christ in the cross, that has nothing to do with you. You get no glory. We become lesser. He becomes greater. And the crowd that's standing there, they hear it and they heard it thundered. Uh, We read that in Psalm 29, that the voice of the Lord is like thunder. Some say maybe an angel was speaking. But Jesus tells them, the voice came for your sake, not mine. Jesus didn't need confirmation that the Father's name would be glorified. Jesus is not uncertain of God's glory. It's for them, not him. This is for your sake, not mine. Now, Jesus gets into really deep water. So this takes another degree, but you must understand everything that that, that comes with this. The glory and the life that comes with the cross. But look what he says here. Jesus answered. And again, this is not an answer. The voice has come for your sake and not mine. Now, this is not an answer. This is a declaration. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Now. That same hour. What else does the cross mean? It means judgment. It means the casting out of Satan. It means victory for Christ in the saints. Now at the cross. The cross is the basis for all judgment. Now is the judgment of this world. When we go before the judgment seat of Christ one day, we'll be judged against this hour. Everything before the judgment seat is against this hour. Was, my, was, was your sins covered with my blood on the cross? Or are you rejecting me and still responsible for your own sins? Everything will be judged against this moment. Did I bear your sins or do you love your life in this world so much that you're willing to die for it? That's the question that happens at judgment. And is the judgment of this world. Everyone who loves their life in this world and who worships the ruler of this world, it is their judgment. The cross means certain death, eternal death, destruction and damnation for whoever loves this world and serves this world and the ruler of this world. But take heart, brothers and sisters. He's only the ruler of this world, not the next His rule and his power is limited by Christ himself. He's the ruler of this world. And in first glance, it seems like nailing Jesus to the cross is victory for this world and Satan. But it's not. It's defeat. Jesus going to the cross and redeeming his people. And making it possible that they might have everlasting life in him is defeat for the enemy. Because with it, he defeats, defeats sin and death. So then we get into this weird language that we don't fully understand. Now, the judgment of this world, now, 
the ruler of this world be cast out. This is language that people debate over, uh, that becomes very difficult. This is where people separate on, on what they, they view about the end times. But I think Jesus is, is pretty clear here. Uh, and I would recommend, if anyone's confused by the end times, Revelation especially, uh, William Hendrickson's book, More Than Conquerors, it's fantastic. Uh, it's helped me so much. So I want to go to him on this in the two passages he cites. So he's referring to this passage here, and he says this. Even more important is the fact that here, in John 12, 20-32, the casting out of Satan is associated with the fact that not only the Jews, as was the rule in the past, but all men, Greeks as well as Jews, shall be drawn to Christ. All this shall happen as a result of Christ suffering on the cross and the sending of the Holy Spirit. Colossians 2.15 very definitively associates the despoiling of Satan and his armies with Christ. So Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 13. I'm going to read 13 through 14. Look how Paul draws all this together in Colossians chapter 2. Verse 13. And you... Who are dead in your trespasses and sins. What was Jesus' purpose coming, uh, of coming? What was this hour for? For you who are dead in your trespasses and sins. You were raised. Excuse me. And you who were dead in your trespasses and sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Then, what goes right along with it? What else does he attach to the cross? Verse 15. He disarmed at the cross the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Your salvation and the defeat of Satan and his his enemies, overthrowing the wicked rule of this earth, happened at the cross. The end is inevitable. Put everything in motion. He goes on to say, Revelation 12 clearly shows that the casting out of Satan was a result of Christ's coronation. Now it's going to go into the deep end a little bit. We are going to go to Revelation chapter 12. Uh, But I want you to get this because now we see the end of all things. John is looking into the future. And we won't get into uh, different views of when this is happening and, and what's happening. But I want you to see this. Revelation chapter 12, verse 7. Listen, listen to all these details we've been learning about. See how it's all drawn together. Now a war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven, and the great dragon was thrown down, cast out, thrown down, same idea. That ancient serpent who was called devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a voice in heaven saying, now the salvation And the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. This is the death blow. The fighting decisive moment. The kingdom of God. The authority of Christ. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. Who accuses them night and day before God. And they have conquered him. By what? By the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. Why? Why? For they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. This is the beginning of the end. 
And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. Right before, before this, a woman gives birth to a male child, obviously Christ. The woman is uh, synonymous, kind of like the daughter of Zion last week, with the uh, people of God, humanity, God's people. The woman who gave birth to the child, he begins to pursue her. He persecutes the church. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to a place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time. What happens? Satan is defeated by the blood of the lamb, cast down to earth to deceive the nations for a time, but his time is short. And he goes after, who's the first one he goes after? The woman, the church, the saints. But what does God do? He nourishes them in the wilderness. Sound familiar? For a time, 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 and half a time. It's the, the perfect span of time. So defeated, Satan can deceive the nations, but he can no longer deceive the saints. And they'll be nourished by the great eagle. We, we know that, that language from Isaiah. You lifted me up on eagle's wings. This is prophecy about the church. You see all this coming together. The cross means victory for us, defeat for Satan, but also persecution. And on this side of the cross, we can be assured that we will be nourished until our Savior comes again. But now we understand why spiritual warfare is so real because Satan has been cast down to earth. He's been banished here. But we who are in Christ are no longer his. And I, back in John chapter, or verse 32, and I, when I am lifted up from earth, will draw all people to myself. When John uses the language of lifted up, he refers it, remember we, we think back to the uh, stake with the serpent on top of it. With the Israelites were in the wilderness. That is salvation. Look at this and you will not die. When Jesus is lifted up to the cross and eventually will be lifted up to heaven, when he will eventually be ascended, he will begin to draw the nations. This is what the Greeks are waiting for. This is what they need to see. That when he is exalted, when he's lifted up, then he will be able to draw all people. All peoples, every tongue, tribe, and nation. His elect everywhere. This language that that goes throughout John. All who are born again. All who have eternal life. All who are given to him by the Father. All the chosen. All the elect. They are drawn by the Father. To the Son. By the Spirit. When I am lifted up, I will draw all peoples, including Greeks, to myself. But I must defeat sin and Satan first. That's why Jesus doesn't talk to them. That's why the conversation does not matter. All this must happen first. The hour must come first. And then, while I'm lifted up, I will begin to draw all peoples to myself. Help tie all that together? I want you to see this. This is the hour for why Jesus came. This is why all this is important. This is why we must understand who Christ is and what he has done and what he accomplished on the cross. It wasn't just kind of good news. It was the best news the world would ever hear to the glory of God forever and ever. It is so great that they are singing praises to him in heaven right now. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. This brings glory to God. And John says in verse 33, he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Well, now that we've walked through this, you know what kind of death he's going to die. A death on the cross. I just want to leave you with three things as we close. The cross means many things. 
means salvation. It means redemption. It means life. That death that he died, he had to. It was his whole purpose for coming. But most importantly, it means glory to God. It means that God receives the glory for what only he could do in our lives. And it means victory over Satan. It means defeat to sin and death forever. This leads us into the Great Commission. Because now that our Savior has died for sins, and now he begins drawing all nations to himself, that's what evangelism is. Go, make disciples of all nations as you are going. The ones that he is is drawing, we get to be a part of the harvest. Every tongue, tribe, and nation, the gospel goes out. Because our Savior went to the cross and died and defeated the last enemy and is bringing his lost sheep home. He told his disciples earlier on, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. Now is the time when the other sheep from the other fold come home. Those of us who know him, we are awaiting when he returns in the full glory of heaven. We've seen the glory of God in creation. We've seen the glory of God in scripture. We've seen the glory of God in the incarnation. But we see the glory of God in resurrected Jesus Christ. And we will see him in his full glory when he comes again. Let's pray. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Worthy to receive honor and glory and praise forever and ever. Amen.